Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will be underway in a moment after a message from our sponsor, Google. Many mothers find it hard to start working again. We started our online catering business for them. Through Grow with Google, we learn how to make our business stand out for free. Now in France, we've empowered more than 50 women to make a living from their cooking skills. We are Lubna and Donia of Meet My Mama. Two of the 725,000 Europeans so far who found a job or grown their business with Google's help. By 2020, we will support one million more. Grow with Google. To find out more, search new skills, new opportunities. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm Ryan Heath, political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Well, it's been a fun week of change here in Europe once again. We've got new governments in Spain, led by Pedro Sanchez, a socialist, who's brought on board a couple of Brussels veterans in key posts. Nadia Calvino is the new economy minister after heading up the budget department here in Brussels, and Josep Borrell, a former president of the European Parliament, is foreign minister. Italy's got a new government as well, with Giuseppe Conte announcing he is proud to be populous. And Slovenia had elections Sunday. They don't know who's going to govern yet, but it's going to be another set of interesting negotiations. And to celebrate the 50th episode of EU Confidential, we've got an NGO-themed, a civil society-themed podcast with three, not one, but three special guest interviews. We speak to Jana Hainsworth, who's the president of Social Platform and the secretary general of Eurochild. She talks about the good and the frustrating things of negotiating and lobbying with the EU. Then we talk to Patrick Gaspar. He's the president of the Open Society Foundations. You may know them as the Soros Foundations. And finally, we speak to Evelyn Paradis, who is the secretary general of ILGA Europe, the LGBTI lobbying and advocacy organization here in the continent. And then in the podcast panel, we talk about a new generation of European leaders. Just in time for the 50th episode of EU Confidential, the average age of EU national leaders has just dropped below 50. So everyone from Sebastian Kurz, Mr. Putin's friend, the 31-year-old leader of Austria, through to Alexander Gowland, the 77-year-old driving force behind the alternative for Deutschland. Joining me now on the podcast is Jana Hainsworth, who is the president of Social Platform and the secretary general of Eurochild. And I thought I'd invite you on to talk to us a little bit about how NGO world, how civil society world works in Brussels and how you interact with the EU institutions. So welcome, Jana. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's good to be here. 
Let's start with something pretty basic. There are literally hundreds of civil society organisations that try and interact with the EU. And the EU has a self-image as an organisation that has a very strong, even moral value system. How do you feel, how do your members feel about the way that the EU engages you and consults you? Is it satisfactory or do you kind of feel like you're stuck on the outside sometimes? Well, the rhetoric is there that civil dialogue and civil society engagement is important. But I have to say that there's a huge gap in actually how it engages and involves civil society in decision making. And I think the most important message is that there is a big difference between consultation, which is a kind of one-off, and the Commission does a lot of it. I don't know how they have the capacity to process all of the people who they consult. Maybe they don't. (laughs) Maybe Maybe some of it's for show. (laughs) I think there is an element of that as well and how superficial that can be when you launch so many different public consultations. But the important thing is that consultation is not the same as involvement. It's not the same as engaging with people and sharing ideas and pitching differences of interest against one another and allowing people to understand how the EU works, what decisions it takes, what's its power, what it, how it influences local, regional, national policies. And so to be honest, you end up having this very, very superficial process. And that's where I think NGO networks, organised civil society, which have a membership base, which spend most of their time trying to digest, interpret, translate EU processes into the language and the ways that the members can understand, is such an important and painstakingly long and but really valuable and necessary piece of the EU puzzle. And do you feel that some of these sort of missed opportunities or or miscommunications that occur between the EU and civil society, is it through lack of goodwill? Is it that sometimes the bureaucracies are big enough to be kind of self-fulfilling and self-justifying and so that they they don't rely on your expertise maybe in the same way they would if they were just a smaller group of people who, who needed more of the expert input. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important not to think of the EU as a single block because there are definitely champions who really understand what civil society does, how we need to be involved. But as a body, as a whole, and certainly in this, this leadership, I think there's a lot of arrogance and the, the danger. And I think basically one of my diagnoses of why the EU is where it is today is that people who work here think that the EU is their centre of gravity. Well, actually, for most people on the ground, the EU is not their centre of gravity whatsoever. Sometimes it does some good things, sometimes it does bad things. Sometimes it's really, I mean, the way that many of members of social platformers perceive the EU influencing national policies has been completely undermining social inclusion, human dignity, all of those things that, at least on paper, the EU says that it respects. And your issues aren't always ones where the EU has a lot of legal powers, but they are ones that Europeans care about. I wonder if there's a bit of a mismatch between what Europeans want from the EU and what your members are trying to tell the EU and sort of the view from the Berlimont about what the EU is really there to do. So definitely there's that mismatch. And I think that the biggest error is that a lot of the areas where the EU has competence and has indeed a huge amount of influence 
on member state policies and more so in the, since the euro crisis and all the work around growth and stability pact that has fundamental impact and influence on member states capacity to manage issues around social inclusion, poverty reduction, employment creation and all of those things which is directly touching the lives of of people and what happened was that the EU got a very bad reputation because it's perceived very much as being a market-oriented machine and which doesn't take the rights of people to heart. And now with Juncker's in this latest initiative on the European pillar of social rights, there's this sense that yes, social is fundamentally important to the European project and that needs to be a direct connection with citizens. And the language that Juncker and the Prime Minister of Sweden used in the Gothenburg summit was people first. How do you reconcile that with what has been happening over the last few years? I mean, it, it's a long process of trust building. And my biggest gripe with the EU is that whilst they have a wonderful rhetoric, the way that they undertake policies, the way that they organise conferences and public consultations are superficial. And is part of that a sense of Brussels knows best, that people here, they're, they're highly competent, they're very well educated, so no one doubts their technical skills, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But maybe there's the, the missing soft element, whether it, I don't know whether that's political understanding and political awareness or whether it's something else. But, you know, you do have this sense of people wanting to solve it from the top rather than doing maybe the harder work of engaging at the bottom. Absolutely. And the engaging at the bottom is a lot more listening than talking and creating. Now, I know that this can create, slow down the process that needs to happen in legislation and all the policy initiatives. But at the end of the day, if it's going to get traction and if it's going to get implemented, you need to invest in that level of communication from the grassroots up and get that level of buy-in. And that is what the members of Social Platform do day in, day out. We try to give more ownership to the membership because I think that the anti-EU sentiment is is still a minority. It's a very vocal minority and they have an emotional power because they feed off some of the hypocrisy that exists within the European Union institutions. And maybe to make it real for people who are listening, uh, can you think of a couple of campaigns of some of your members where you think they've been ignored or if they had some real concerns, like they're trying to battle some Eurosceptics in their ranks, where you feel they haven't been taken seriously by the EU, perhaps? I think there's a lot of examples around the public consultations where you get maybe hundreds, if not thousands of, of responses from individuals and then there's no nuancing between what's said from the people's responses which can be from any individual and that of um, civil society and I think another example um, is there's a risk sometimes that the EU co-opts organized civil society to support its initiatives and then says yes civil society was involved because it was consulted yeah it's ticking boxes rather than really listening sure sure So there's examples, European Disability Strategy, that was widely consulted, but not really given the time for people to engage at the local grassroots level and to support civil society that were able to do that. There is 
a risk that the EU is actually backtracking on many of the commitments that they've made. So this is not kind of civil society being unreasonable or asking something that is beyond the capabilities of the EU. No, I mean, we're all basically civil society activists that have one foot here in Brussels in the technocratic language of regulations, da 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 da, and another foot in the member states where we're trying to listen to members and understand and digest and, and, and translate their needs. And there is a real risk, and this is what many members, many civil society activists have been advocating for and, and lobbying uh, Oettinger and others, but we're not asking the world, we're asking for the best use of EU money to make a difference to the lives of people on the ground. So we should be allies. We, ha- we should be allies in saying, you know, how do you make best use of the EU money, which is always going to be a tiny drop in the ocean in the member states, but it's transformational if it's used in the right way. I mean, I've heard it said before, and I agree with it, that the EU is more than its institutions. So if Brussels does have a democratic deficit, maybe not through ill will, but just because it is the furthest level of government removed from people living their lives on the ground, then by being inclusive of civil society, it's potentially the path for the EU to get more legitimacy, to have more of those links that it says that it needs in order to be sustainable. Yeah, and that's also about giving a little bit of its power away, which is a bit of a tricky thing for the EU to think about doing. But um, that's what we try to do in civil society is that how do we engage our members to take more ownership, more responsibility. Personally, I'm working in the children's rights sector. We're trying to empower children, young people to have their own voice, to be organising our events. And, and this is something that the EU is very, very bad at doing. But it will not move further in getting the level of engagement and the trust if it doesn't start bit by bit trying to piece off what it can give responsibility to others to do and give them the power to own that and develop that and then that will be really living the values that are on paper. Well, if you're an EU official listening, that's a real challenge. We hope you consider it. Jana Hensworth, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much, Ryan. Next, we hear from Patrick Gaspar, the president of the Open Society Foundations. Patrick, welcome to EU Confidential. Ryan, thank you so very much for having me on. I'm thrilled to be on this great show. Now, I thought maybe I could get you to explain a little bit about your background and how you came into the world of civil society, because you've served as an ambassador, you've worked closely with the Obama administration, and now you have worked your way up from being in charge of advocacy at Open Society Foundations, and now you're basically running the whole show. Wow, that's intimidating, Ryan. Writing the whole show. I'll try to live up to that. You know, it feels to me as if I have had one job my entire life. I came into the work of civil society and activism very, very early on as a young person who got involved in acts of solidarity uh, with communities uh, in struggle in the United States. First, uh, in my community, the diaspora, my family's from Haiti. I was always early on concerned about issues uh, in Haiti and in the Caribbean. Eventually became a very, very young activist in the anti-apartheid movement. And when I was all of 19 years old, the most remarkable thing happened. Because of collective action, because of demonstrations, because of our sit-ins, we managed to get uh, the U.S. Congress to override the veto pen of Ronald 
Ronald Reagan and to impose sanctions on the apartheid regime in South Africa. So when I was 19, I discovered the incredible power of collective voice, of agency for active citizens, uh, and I was hooked for life. And I was looking over the body of work that Open Society Foundations does, and it really got its start going behind the Iron Curtain and trying to literally open up those societies. And it seems to me that the work has kind of you know, stayed largely the same, but some of those uh, post-communist regimes are the, the organizations that have been changing rather than, than OSF itself. Is that how it feels sitting where you are? And can you tell the people listening a little bit more about what OSF does? And I ask that because a lot of them will only know it as this kind of uh, headline that's related to George Soros. And they maybe don't understand the, the granular detail of, of what you actually do in all of these new and emerging democracies. Wow, you're asking for granularity in a world where everybody just reads 140 uh, characters these days. So <laughs> let's, see if we, let's see if we can accomplish that uh, in, in this time here, Ryan. If you look at uh, the arc of the work, whether it's supporting the rights of the Roma community in Eastern Europe, or right now, today, being one of the loudest and clearest voices on the plight of the Rohingya in Myanmar, there has always been a consistent thread of defense, protection, and most importantly, partnership with communities that are disadvantaged, that are imperiled, and who are, at the end of the day, insisting that all of us together live up to the values that are enshrined uh, in uh, our constitutions. I just arrived here from Macedonia, where I joined the new prime minister of Macedonia in commemorating the 25th anniversary of OSF's founding in that remarkable country. I think Macedonia, for me, is a kind of a microcosm of the work that we do globally. We have invested in, in the deepest ways in helping to build an infrastructure for healthcare in the country, for early childhood education, for the promulgation of fellowships and scholarships that have enabled young people from Macedonia to go study in some of the finest institutions, but to then return to their country to take up uh, issues of inclusion, justice, uh, and access. It did start behind the Iron Curtain. Right now, we're making grants in 144 countries, and you'll find these consistent themes of access, democracy, uh, equality, running straight through all of the work. So of those 144 countries where you're working, there's a handful of governments or regimes, we might even call them, who are not so happy with the work that you're doing. Is there any pattern among those governments that you see? Is it that they existentially against what OSF stands for, or do they frame it in more tactical terms, no. that they don't like a particular project or a particular leader? You know, Ryan, I don't think that we are in the business of popularity. When you are working for historically challenged communities, it's natural that you're going to run up against uh, spaces where your work is thought to be provocative, controversial, against the grain. That's a space that Open Society Foundation and all of my colleagues throughout the network are incredibly comfortable to occupy and actually incredibly proud to occupy. OSF is also making a move. You're moving a Budapest office to Berlin, which at one level, that makes perfect sense. There are other big NGOs like Transparency International in Berlin. It's clearly the national capital, which is the biggest power center Ryan, in Europe. Ryan, you make it sound like a trip uh, by a family during a summer move. 
Uh, I think that in Berlin, we'll find ourselves in a community that shares a set of values that we're all working earnestly to project out into the world. But here's the kicker. Now here's the kicker. I wonder, does, do things have to get worse in Budapest and Hungary before they get better, in a sense, where at one level you are there to stand by your values and challenge those problems that you just identified in the last question. But sometimes things get unworkable and sometimes you can't solve all of those problems in a society. The society maybe has to hit rock bottom before it uh, improves. What's your take there? I will tell you that uh, at least for the Open Society Foundation, uh, we determined that the circumstances in Hungary had grown intolerable to our work and that it was not possible to continue to conduct our philanthropy there with real integrity. You know that um, the Prime Minister of Hungary has told the world that he intends to pass legislation very soon, that he has dubbed the Stop Soros uh, legislation. Of course, he conveniently uses our founder as his uber boogeyman, but we all know that this is not about George Soros. This is not about the Open Society Foundation. It's about civil society writ large. It's about average Hungarians who are just hoping to have a justice system with real integrity, who hope to have access to proper and decent health care, and hope to find opportunities through a uh, education system that they can be proud of. Those are challenges uh, in Hungary today, challenges that we have partnered with the NGO community to take on. And as a consequence, the prime minister and others in his party have decided to turn the focus of their fire on our foundation. There are real challenges uh, in corruption uh, in Hungary. And I suspect that with the Open Society Foundation not there as a day-to-day object that he can politicize, that the prime minister and those in his party will actually have to answer questions from their citizens about health care, about education, uh, and about the challenge of corruption. Mm-hmm. And how does some of this work in practice? I mean, I, I'd be fascinated to know, do you ever get a call from the prime minister's office? Have you ever been hauled before senior civil servants to explain yourself? Or is this something where you take the next punch via a press release or a random comment from the prime minister on a radio program or something like that? How much of it is this sort of direct engagement and how much of it is you read it like the rest of us in the newspaper? Well, I can tell you that it's not manifest in puffs of smoke that arise from (laughs) from parliament or from the president's office. The attacks against our work have been evident for anyone uh, in Hungary. If you spent any time in Hungary over the last year, you saw during the election campaign that um, the prime minister spent much more time talking about the NGO environment than about his actual political opposition. There were billboards of George Soros all over Budapest. His likeness appeared uh, in ads that were uh, ostensibly about migration and refugees, but were generally about this otherizing of those who uh, asked uh, any difficult questions about the regime. I can tell you that given the long uh, and deep history that George Soros and the Open Society Foundations have had in Hungary, clearly there have been moments of direct engagement with the government, but those are fewer and fewer still. Coming up next, Evelyn Paradis from ILGA Europe. Joining me now on the podcast is the executive director 
of the fabulous international gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and intersex advocacy organization, ILGA, Ms. Evelyn Parody. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> you were you were shocked. You were like, when is this title going to end? What so is like, he? Do I actually tell him that it's Ilga Europe? Ah, <laughs> uh, Okay. I knew that was your thought too. Well, you just got a promotion. <laughs> I'm not sure, actually. The slightly like... less fabulous Ilga Europe. Europe. <laughs> Sorry, having you start again. So, Evelyn, uh, you may have guessed that I've invited you on because it's that moment in the year when a lot of cities around Europe are having their pride festivals. It's when you put out your annual report into how these communities are treated across Europe, what their rights and opportunities and threats and challenges of discrimination are. So maybe you could give us a little run through about what the map is looking like and, and who's up and who's down over the past year. So we have the same front runners that we've had for the last few years. So Malta is the country in Europe which has the best track record. Well, now that's a surprise. Is it a surprise to you at Ilga Europe? Not at all, because they've been number one for now three years. It's the third year. And it's a country that we're quite happy to talk about in terms of where political leadership combined with great local activism, <laughs> great people in the community, just how much you can do. Because I guess it wasn't a great starting position for Malta when they joined the EU. No, it really wasn't. Like five years ago, it would have been much lower on our index. But the government in Malta over the past five years has demonstrated incredible leadership in adopting all the right laws. And when I mean all the right laws, it's way beyond um, the laws that usually make the headlines, like marriage equality. They've been literally breaking ground globally when it comes to rights for trans people and the rights for intersex people. So at the moment, they have some of the laws that we use as models, not just in our own region, but people across the world basically refer to Malta. So number two this year is Belgium, which is doing great. Congratulations. <laughs> exactly. And we have Norway in third position. But one of the things we've actually been pointing to this year is the fact that some of the usual suspects when you think about LGBTI equality, like the Netherlands and Sweden, are actually quite lower than, much lower than one would expect. Mm -hmm. So Sweden ranks 10th. And the Netherlands is out of the top 10 in Europe. Wow. They rank 11. I did not know that. That's yes. terrible because I have been looking at this index and the report. So I should really have clocked that. But does that mean they've been sliding in relative terms against other people's progress? Or it means they've actually wound back the clock on some of their advances? No, it's... It, I mean, it would be unfair <laughs> to say that the Netherlands is not championing LGBTI equality because, you know, they are one of the governments in Europe and globally that actually are investing hugely politically and in terms of resources, but they have indeed, you know, fallen to complacency. Tell us a little bit about the story of how people in Central and Eastern Europe are faring. Yeah, well, I think whilst, you know, some countries that have been traditional kind of equality trailblazers, if you want, are maybe going a bit more slow. The other big story of our map indeed is the fact that so many of the countries are actually stagnating at the bottom. But I think it's important to think, to know and to be aware it's not just happening outside of the EU borders. There are quite a number of EU countries that are also stagnating at the bottom, not progressing. Countries in the Baltics, 
but also a country like Italy, which is, you know, one of the six founding members <laughs> of well, the it's European an Union. an interesting time right now in Italy, too, where I can, you know, I'm not saying that everyone in the new Italian government is going to cause problems, but there are probably some elements in there who aren't going to be champions out there with the rainbow flag over the next year. No, indeed. But one would hope that this is also the time for many people in Italy with people who care about a progressive human rights agenda to point out to that fact. Um, it's also a, a case in point in terms of what the EU can do. You know, this mm -hmm. is where being part of institutions like the European Union or the Council of Europe, for that matter, these are places where other people can push Italy to do better. Because when you look at the map and you notice how much Italy is below many non-European Union well, that's countries. That's the fascinating thing. Italy yeah. gets a lower <coughs> score than Montenegro, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Albania, Kosovo, Serbia. Now, I don't... Serbia now has an openly lesbian prime minister. But I wouldn't normally associate it as a country where you can just hold hands with your same-sex partner and live your full life, let's say. But it's very interesting to see that it gets a higher score than Italy. And it brings us back to this point about the EU membership negotiation process and what that does to change legal and sometimes cultural structures in different countries. And being a founding member of the EU, Italy didn't have to go through that process. So it got a free pass, hasn't done much with its free pass since. And these countries in the Western Balkans are actually lifting their game. Yeah, indeed. I mean, one thing that is important about the map, it does look only at the laws and policies. So we're not claiming to be reflecting the actual reality on the ground for LGBTI people. But indeed, you're pointing to a very crucial piece, which is the role that the EU can play and does play in accession negotiations, which is in large part why these countries score high on our index. Many, many good laws have been adopted over the last few years because the EU really has, the in its enlargement policies, really embraced and committed to supporting and advancing LGBTI rights. And it's a crucial part of their discussions when it comes to human rights agenda with the Western Balkan countries. But the EU doesn't have the same kind of conversations and mechanisms to encourage its own member state to, you know, step up <laughs> when it comes to adopting good proactive policies on LGBTI equality. A lot of the legislation has been achieved. And then some of the other challenges come outside the legislative field. So we understand more and more about how something called intersectionality, which some of the listeners will be familiar with and others won't, but about how being from different groups where you're not in the majority, you know, that that all connects up a lot of the time and you can end up in a situation where you're disadvantaged in multiple ways, cornered potentially. And a lot of getting out of that and understanding what that is, you can't really write that into a law. It's about things beyond the legal books. What you're addressing is actually now that those laws are adopted, they do tend to benefit, you know, a certain part of the LGBTI community. So it is very often that it is the, you know, people who are more educated, come from upper social classes. There's the whole element of ethnicity. And You're looking at a white gay guy here. Exactly. Who's sitting in an office. So, <laughs> I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. You're talking about me. You think... Potentially, people like me, we get our marriage equality. Getting married in September, folks, by the way. I'm gonna Congratulations. Go, getting a ring on it. But that we will just leave everyone else for dead and we won't stop to think about the people who don't sweep up the advantage so quickly. Well, I think 
already the fact that you're naming this Ryan takes you out of that category I think (laughs) if I may I'll take that I'll take that but I think that is the conversation that we're trying to push as hard as we can at ILGA Europe and giving a voice and making the voices of people heard is absolutely crucial to the work we do so looking at LGBTI asylum seekers looking at LGBTI people who come from ethnic minority backgrounds looking at how poverty is an issue huge issue within the LGBTI communities looking at how gender is because sometimes people they just don't realize that thing where if you've been kicked out of home because your parents say "Mm, sorry we don't want you you're a lesbian or you're a gay guy or i think really the trans community is probably the one in the toughest situation of all where it's huge mental challenges more likely to be rejected by the people close to you than than any other group and then you're really in a tight space yeah, and we're not perfect at Ilga Europe either. Huh? It's it, it, This is a conversation we've, in relative terms, only started, it feels, and we're still on that path of talking because a lot of the agenda that we've been prioritizing over the past decade is indeed the agenda of a minority within the group, which is that notion of leaving no one behind. So Mm -hmm. now that we have all these great laws, as you say, so how do we make sure that no one is left behind in benefiting from all of the equality that we're, you know, finally starting to get? Well, maybe that brings us to a tactical question, because one of the things that I think these gay and lesbian movements over the last 40 years have been really good at doing is developing allies and building partnerships and coalitions, including among people who don't identify as a member of those communities. So now it's time to bring it back to you, Evelyn, because I remember the first time I met you and I was like, oh, do you have a girlfriend? Are you married? And then I got a bit of a slap in the face when you answered that question, didn't I? (laughs) Yes, Ryan, you did. (laughs) Uh, No, indeed, I, I, I am not one who identifies as a LGBTI. I identify as heterosexual. Straight! I am straight. God, we've been straight into the podcast. I can't believe it. Yeah, but uh, and and actually, I must say, I am. I feel always privileged that um, the LGBTI movement accepted me and welcomed me and allowed me to play the role that I play um, in an organization like ILGA Europe. But that only makes me more mindful of the spaces that I take and where I speak. I, I think it's a bit of an advantage for the organization because it, it lets your organization show that it is open. You know, the outcome is what matters, not the label. You need to see yourself as the one that creates the space, but then takes a step back and allow other people to be heard. That is a very noble approach. Thank you for joining us, Evelyn. Thank you very much for inviting me, Ryan. And now it's time for the best joint 50th birthday party I've ever been to. 50 episodes of EU Confidential with Lena Abarus and Alva Finn. Hello, ladies. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Alva. (laughs) Happy birthday. Yeah, happy 50th. We are feeling our age. We were barely able to get this recording equipment going, but we are going to battle through in Politico Towers. 
I think given that we're turning 50, we need to also let you in on a new piece of information. Our research service here at EU Confidential, our little team of interns that burrow away in a basement during the week, well, actually me on my computer, we calculated that the average age of the EU's national leaders is now under 50, probably for the first time in memory. And we're turning 50, so we're going to talk about all those leaders. Who's up, who's down, who's establishment, who's not, who's young, who's old. Got any thoughts, Alva? It's very handy that you've done this little matrix, like weaseling away at this uh, at a little graph. I think what's really striking is that even though we have younger politicians, it doesn't mean that we have more liberal politicians. We see a lot of, actually, for example, like Leo Vradker, he's more establishment. Sebastian Kurz, obviously, very disruptive, populist, more populist in than I would say. Oh, I Ma- would have Matteo liked to Salvini, he's pretty left-wing in Italy. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I don't. I don't think so. But um, I think it's great that we have younger leaders. But it's not necessarily going in the way that I would like it to go. Maybe Lena has a few thoughts. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, since I come from a very young nation and we had a very young leaders always, I think it's a very good because it connects with the population. It connects with the young generations. They are not only young, but uh, some of them they're as well stylish. They are less traditional in the way they communicate and they are more on the social media. They're more, of course, as Alva said, they doesn't mean that they have very liberal mind, but I think there is a revolution as well mm-hmm. in the way they connect. He's maybe the liberal package in that respect. Absolutely. And he is really bringing something to the table. And now you have, as well with Pedro Sanchez in Spain, it's a great change for Spain, younger, uh, more liberal, more open, uh, much needed. I hope we will have younger commissioners as well and young commission, not only from the member states. So it, it has to be matching from member states and the upcoming commission. One thing I thought was very interesting is that if you sort of pull back a bit and think about the last 10 years, I would have thought that the reaction of European people to the financial and economic crisis starting from 2008, I would have thought it would have spilled into the streets, frankly, probably in 2011, if not before, when the Eurozone was in real trouble. And we didn't really see a lot of that happening at that time. And now we're sort of seeing the backlash. It's a very orderly backlash, but whether it is a new generation of people, whether it is the rise of populist governments, we now really have a handful of populist governments. It's kind of happening as a delayed reaction to that crisis, in my view. Yeah, I think that you're right. I think that these people were younger when austerity was happening and they've become populist and Eurosceptic as a result because Europe wasn't delivering for them. So, yeah, I do think that that is the reasoning. And, yeah, a lot of people who reacted badly to austerity weren't going out on the streets. They were joining politics, which is a very interesting, I think, development and joining politics to basically reform the European Union or leave the European Union. But it's very noticeable as well uh, how old the leadership is here in Brussels by comparison to these new national leaders. When you kind of sketch all of these names out on a sheet of paper, you realise that Jean-Claude Juncker, though he looks a lot older, is uh, 63. Antonio Tajani is 64. Merkel's also 63. Michel Barnier, were he to run for commission president next time round, the, the chief EU Brexit negotiator, he's even older. Donald Tusk is a very sprightly 61, but they're definitely all out of step with that, that trend at it's national It's the politics. sleepless nights. 
I think. I mean, the war is uh, keeping Europe moving and making Europe a better place for the citizens. It's, it's, it's really, it's the responsibility. It's, it's not an easy job. We expect so many things from them and they are at the end of the day humans and they struggle and they want to deliver and they want to stay in politics. And uh, well, if we have a new generation of populists, as they always say, we need, we need, this is, this is the word, this is politics. We have to change. We have to try. We have to see all sorts of directions and principles. And I think if they have to govern at a certain point, uh, history repeats itself. And uh, yeah, there will be their era. We will never know. Well, I'm going to make a prediction now, actually. Yeah. I don't think we're going to have this kind of older constellation of Eurocrats again in the next commission. I don't think we're going to have the same European Parliament. We can see massive gains from populists all over Europe. It's going to be a very interesting climate in Brussels, I think, next year when we have the change of the guard in the European Parliament. And How low can we go at the commission? What's the youngest commission president you could find credible? I mean, I would find any young leader credible. I think, uh, yeah, we could. So if a 31 year old turned up in the Spitzen candidate race, wowed everyone in a debate, like in the TV series Borgen. I don't think we're going to get a 31 year old Spitzen candidate. Or maybe we'll get a Spitzen candidate, but they won't actually be the European Commission president. What I co- could see is, is commissioners leaning towards the younger side, like less 60-year-olds, more 40s, more, yeah, maybe late 30s. Margarini, I suppose, was in her late 30s when she became mm-hmm. um, yeah. Cecilia Malmström, just yeah. 40, exactly. Yuki Katayan in mid-40s. Modeas, um, all of them. I mean, we, ha- we have very few of them that are really older now. But uh, again, th- that doesn't mean that they will do a bad job and that doesn't mean that they will do a good job. They need to think where they want to take Europe and how Europe is going to be more open to the world and how they will come overcome all these challenges. This commission will not leave a very peaceful, very calm, very easy continent after it, I think. Now, it's our 50th episode, and we were discussing before we turned the tapes on here how much we miss the Dear Politico section. <laughs> so I don't know, dear listeners... What can we do to encourage you to share more of your personal dilemmas? We just we just love solving problems and coming up with advice here. Alva, have you got any pitch to the people listening? Yeah, I think we were talking about where we've had the most impact and, and we all wanted to say something about that. But I think one of the things that ha- was the most impactful was that. Do you remember when we, well, we didn't save that poor intern from being scammed, but we let him know that he was being scammed on the way to Brussels. We saved other people. Other mm. people contacted yeah. him and said... I was getting scammed too. Thank God I heard this and that you spoke out and I didn't hand over the money. Mm. So this was a rental scam. And uh, some people were caught and others were saved by discussing it on the podcast. For me, it was the women that trusted the us and trusted the program to, to write about their harassment issues. Uh, it was really, really touchy. And... Uh, it gave us a lot of responsibility and um, it touched our lives. I think it, it was really something very changing, a very um, big moment uh, for the bro- program because it, it unfolded the whole the whole story of, of harassment in, in Brussels. That's actually really striking because I think we're still hitting a ceiling on Me Too in Brussels. Like it's, it obviously goes on. For some structural reason, not many people feel willing or able to put their name to their claims, but we did find a format where people could anonymously talk about what happened to them. Something that prompted more of a discussion even before Harvey Weinstein, but through activism, through journalism, it hasn't really been able to go much beyond 
what we were doing a year ago on the podcast. Mm. Oh, well, I thought it was really interesting when you were interviewing Yurova and she came out with her own Me Too movement mm. or it's her own Me Too moment. And then, you know, she really linked it to hard policy, which I like when, as I always say, human rights are not theoretical. They actually apply in real life. And when you have a commissioner who comes out and says, this happened to me, and, you know, I am supporting things like the Istanbul Convention, which is a Council of Europe convention, um, which is about violence against women and domestic violence. You know, that that's real. That's tangible to me. And that's what I think about the Me Too movement, although it's been very disruptive and there are good and bad points to it. I think that it has changed the narrative here and it will change the narrative on things like yeah, the EU ratifying, for example, the Istanbul Convention. I think actually that's my one appeal to anyone listening. We'd love your ideas on on how to make not the EU more relatable. It's not a sales pitch for the EU, but new ways to talk about the EU. I mean, I'd love to see more people engaged in the EU election process next year. And I think that you can't cover and discuss those sort of politics, which are complicated and removed from most people's everyday lives. You can't do it in the standard traditional way. So we need new ways to talk about it. And I'd love to hear any of your thoughts about how we can do that. And and I think that's what I'm most proud of is that we're helping people have conversations about the European Union in new ways. I hope you feel the same. Yeah, but what was your most uh, brilliant interview for the EU Confidential, Ryan? It's really hard. I mean, in my head I say Daniel Ek, the CEO of Spotify, and then I rethink that and I think, well, hang on, isn't that just a really low bar that I found a (laughs) tech CEO who isn't I don't even know how to say it without swearing. I'm going to say it and then you can delete it. You know, like, it's a pretty low bar. You know, I get to meet a tech CEO who isn't a and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. It's my favorite interview. I, I'm not sure that that is a, uh, the right calibration for measuring my interview. But I did enjoy sitting and talking to a lot of the commissioners and I was surprised at how open Tony Blair was. I thought it was the old Tony Blair back in the game when I interviewed him. And Nicola Sturgeon is the one who surprised me the most. Mm-hmm. Like she was the most warm and engaging compared to my impressions. She was definitely him. brilliant. I think that what, 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 the most statesman or stateswoman-like person I think that you you had interviewed. I like Pierre Moscovici as well. He was so nice and relatable. It I was think the first like, one. I think yeah, we forget actually. because it was a while ago, but he was like, he was very amiable, I thought, yeah. and very personable. I liked mm-hmm. it. I, I would prefer that kind of, if he does, because he's put himself into the ring for a Spitzen candidate. Um, <laughs> I would prefer if we had a more approachable commission president next time around, because yeah. it's going to be very difficult. And we want the EU citizens to be able to yeah, approach their leaders. But remember, it depends on the head of the cabinet as well. Mm. <laughs> how, how approachable he will be. <laughs> or she will be. You never know. <laughs> yeah, we forgot. Martin Selmayer is under 50. So yeah. he's the new generation. Yeah, you should <laughs> put him on this matrix. To a different type of unelected leader. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thank you, Lena. Thank you, Alvo. Thank you. And remember, wherever you found the podcast, please take a moment to rate, review or subscribe. And also go to politico.eu forward slash registration if you'd like to formally join our community. You'll get the podcast sent to you with a newsletter each week and you'll get invites to any podcast related events. Of course, everything we do here is a team effort. So a very big shout out on this 50th episode to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.